I want you to turn with me in the scriptures to beginning on Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to jump a lot of places all over the Bible today. Uh, and I'm going to focus. You, I'm just going to warn you, I'm going old school this morning. And uh, uh, we're going to Bible class. And I just feel like instead of hitting one scripture and then running across a few, we're going to put our heart and mind in several today. So I want you to engage in the Word, get your Word out, get your notes out, get ready to uh, address this. I didn't get finished in the first service, so I know that I will continue this message again next Sunday. So I'm going to go as far as I can this morning, and I'll pick up where I left off next Sunday. And the topic will continue well on the commemoration day of September the 11th, 2001. We'll honor the 10-year anniversary of that day next weekend. And the topic of conversation this morning will flow well into that 10-year anniversary. The last several days, I've continued to whisper prayers for the rain to come to our desperate state. Many of you know we prayed for rain a few weeks ago in a Sunday evening prayer meeting. And I've continued to whisper prayers for rain over our desperate state. We've watched wildfires destroy the lives of our neighbors and drought bring bankruptcy to farmers and ranchers that many of us know personally. Just in this last week, on Friday, I had coffee with the man who was having that day to sell all of his cattle because of the drought conditions. They were so severe that he could not water or feed his cattle any longer. And the hay that he could get his hands on was so expensive, he couldn't afford to continue buying it. And the irony of all of the dryness is that to our south, not too terribly far to our south, a tropical storm is dumping 20 inches of rain on flood-prone prone New Orleans, and while to our east, the recent hurricanes on the east coast destroyed hundreds of miles along the coast and bringing even much of New York City to a standstill. To our north, snowmelt is causing the swelling of rivers, literally threatening the livelihoods of many in North Dakota and South Dakota. And I recently had a conversation with a parishioner in our church who has interest there, and he made reference that the snowmelt from Canada as they let the water out of the lakes there, it is coming in from the Canadian side faster than they can let it down the river. Uh, and it is causing the lake to swell. And they're needing to get all of the water out of the lake before winter. Because the, the, the waters of the river have already gone over their banks and is moving into towns there. But their biggest fear is that when winter comes and it begins to freeze those rivers that now when spring rolls around next year and the river begins to melt, there will be islands of ice floating down swollen rivers that will take out towns and villages in their path. We're surrounded by water on every side, and yet many of our lives are being destroyed because of drought. I know, scientifically, it's called La Nina, an occasional weather pattern that changes the dirt stream and significantly alters weather patterns. That's how you explain it logically. But when you look at all of our fires and all of our drought and the fires that are destroying homes in the West Coast and the unprecedented earthquake that just recently happened along the East Coast, I have to admit to you that I've been asking God, Lord, what's really going on here? And I can't imagine, but it is the fulfillment of some things that were written by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter number 8, verse 22 through 25 my spirit believes what is happening is the groaning of creation that Paul referred to in Romans chapter 8. He is writing at a time where the people were suffering in their lives. It was a day of hardship. It was a day of suffering. The people of God were facing persecution. And there were just normal trials of life in that season of the Roman Empire. 
And Paul is trying to let them know that their current struggles will pale in comparison to the surpassing glory of Christ that awaits them at His coming. And he said in verse 22 of Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is describing the hope that is inside of these people is ultimately the future glory they're going to have by being in the presence of God. And that future glory allows them to wait patiently in the suffering and the hardship that they currently endure. Their hope is not even in tomorrow or the next week. He said, who would hope for something they already have? Our hope is anchored in the future glory of being with Jesus, being in His presence, and these current sufferings are going to pale in comparison to that reality. In the middle of that conversation, he says, we are groaning in anticipation, but even the earth, creation, is groaning like a woman in labor. She is giving birth to the reality of this expectancy. The earth is groaning in anticipation for the moment where it will be set at rest, it will be at peace, and the king will rest upon his throne for all of eternity. So you take the groaning of creation, our world's economic instability, the political instability and the moral bankruptcy of our world. And as a believer, you don't have to study much to realize the world we live in is a dark place. But God never intended for His children to determine the reality by the present day happenings or surroundings around them. Their reality is determined by anchoring their hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the Apostle Paul was writing to a young preacher whose day and time mirrored much of the surroundings of our day and time, political instability, uh, moral instability, there was economic instability, suffering and persecution. Paul wrote to Timothy, or Titus in this case, and his day in Titus's case is much like ours, and this is some of the admonition that Paul gives to the young preacher. Titus 2 and 11, he said, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. In the context of a very wicked generation with very uncertain surroundings, the apostle writes to a young preacher who is being despised for his youthfulness in the ministry, and he is telling him, you walk in the authority God has placed on your life, you walk in the authority that comes by yours by way of office, and you teach these people these things. Teach them to reject uh, uh, ungodliness. Teach them to say no to worldly passions. Teach them to live a self-controlled and upright life in the middle of a godless generation in light of the fact that soon our God is going to return to earth again and we wait patiently on the blessed hope 
and the glory of His return. Paul did not ignore the darkness around him, but he allowed the world's desperation to force his eyes upward. The Scriptures say, Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. The darkness of his day made the hope of Christ's return all the more real to him in the season of suffering. He told Titus, It may be dark, but from a believer's perspective, it is gloriously dark because the difficulties of the day that you're living in, while they are dark, moral bankruptcy, and all kinds of instability, the reality is that difficulty, that suffering, that darkness, that moral bankruptcy is setting the placemats for the return of Jesus. It is rolling out the red carpet for the fact that the Lord is coming back into an environment just like that. So it may be dark, that's true, but for the child of God with a different set of lenses and a different perspective, it is gloriously dark. Our world is hopeless. And the little hope our world offers could be labeled a false hope or at best an uncertain hope. But the hope Paul spoke of to Titus, he called a blessed hope. It is a hope that perseveres, uh, causes the believer to persevere. It is a hope that sustains the believer in hours of difficulty. You have to understand that when the Bible refers to hope and the way we use hope in our current conversations is completely different. We use hope in a conversation of uncertainty. We use hope in a conversation of doubt. Matter of fact, most of the time today when you hear the word hope used, it is used like this. Well, I hope so. I, 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 I would hope so. Or I hope so. It's almost as if that statement is latent with more doubt than it is faith. More uncertainty than it is certainty. I hope so. Or I'm just hanging on with a thread that it actually happens. But when the Bible refers to hope, it is not that uncertain hope. It is not the kind of hope that we use in our vocabulary today. When the Bible refers to a blessed hope, it is referring to a hope that sustains the believer in an hour of suffering because the glory of being with Christ causes our suffering to pale in comparison. That our lives are anchored in the bedrock promise of Jesus Christ that He is coming to earth again and that we will be with Him for eternity. That is the blessed hope. It is not a false hope. It is not an uncertain hope. It is a blessed and sure hope. Jesus has written the check of that promise. You can take it to the bank and cash it. It is a blessed hope. And the certainty of Christ's coming is for me several things that I want to talk to you about this morning. And what I don't finish, I will pick up with next week. First of all, the certainty of Christ's coming for me is a purifying hope. In 1 John chapter number 3, verse 2 and 3, John writes in his first letter, Dear friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, we're in process, what we will be. We are now children of God. God has done some great things in our life, but what we will be will, has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. All who have this hope, this blessed hope of His return, purify themselves just as He is pure. Now, we right now are people in process, but when He appears, we will be made perfect. Now, I want you to understand, I've been in the ministry now 21 years, and I can't tell you the number of times I've heard the excuse of why Christian churchgoers are disgruntled or why people who don't go to church refuse to come back to church 
because of the imperfections that they see in the lives of Christians. They use that as an excuse. Well, let me tell you something. Living in the 21st century in America, living among immoral Christians is nothing new. People that go to church that don't live it every day is nothing new. Now, it's not an excuse for it to continue, but it's nothing new. If you will read the Scripture, you will find out that when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to the group of Corinthian believers, the first church of Corinth, when he wrote that letter to them, he was writing to a group of people who were very immoral. These people were getting drunk before they went to take communion at the Lord's table. And much of the Scripture that we have to teach us about how to take communion and the theology around the communion is the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians rebuking them for getting drunk before the communion feast. I mean, these were immoral wine-bibbers and gluttons And yet Paul calls them saints when he writes the passage of Scripture. I don't know about you, but I find that humorous. Because when you look through the Scripture in Corinthians, not only were they drunkards, but they were also sexually immoral. And he calls them saints. Paul obviously was speaking prophetically the things that are not as though they were. He was trying to prophesy a better day for a church that had kind of lost its way. He was hoping, he understood, and he understood what we all need to understand. We're not perfect people, and the imperfection of the Christian church should not be an excuse for us. You read what Paul had to say, some of them were dying because of what they were doing, and he was trying to write to them to tell them they better get their house in order, and the same message needs to be brought forth for us that are walking in impurity as followers of Jesus Christ, bringing reproach on His name. We ought to get our house in order but we have to realize we as a church the Corinthian church then North Place Church now and the church of Jesus Christ as a whole are people in process but at his appearing we will be made perfect in that moment and not until that moment but in that moment in the twinkling of an eye mortality will put on immortality corruption will put on corruption and we will be changed we will be made like him we are people in process but at at that moment, we will be made perfect. The scripture says, John says, all who have this hope purify themselves. In light of the coming of the Lord's return, you better make sure your life is ready because a bedrock faith in the coming of Jesus Christ is a purifying hope. If you knew for certainty that at midnight tonight, Jesus was coming back. No dying, no doubting, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Midnight tonight, Jesus was returning to earth and He was calling His church home and everybody that was ready to go was going to be gone out of here. He was coming back, rapture the church, midnight tonight, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. How would your life change in the next 10 hours if you knew that was a reality? I guarantee you the reality of that return would be a purifying hope in your life. I've got a feeling some of us would make a trip to an altar today and get things right with God. I have a feeling some of us would make phone calls today to make desperate pleas to friends and family to find Christ. I have a, I have a, a belief today that many of us would make phone calls to friends and family today to get things right in broken relationships if we really believed that midnight tonight there was an appointment nobody could turn back on. Because the promise of His return will cause you to rearrange your life. The blessed hope is a purifying hope and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure faith in the future yields work in the present 
When people lose hope, their spirit breaks. The addict quits fighting for deliverance. The discouraged wife stops believing for her marriage. The struggling believer gives up on walking in victory. But when we have a certain hope that is not tied to the happenings of the surroundings of our world, our faith can transcend our surroundings when it is anchored in the bedrock that Jesus Christ is coming again. There is a blessed hope that makes all of what we're going on, going through today, pale in comparison. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John says, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. He's talking to a group of people who are being tempted to wander astray. Gnosticism has come into the church and, t- and started to tempt people who believed in Jesus away to a watered down version of the gospel suffering has come to the people of God the world was not a kind place to live in when John was writing and he says now dear children as a father would to his own children now dear children continue in him don't let suffering don't let religious division don't let cults and heresies cause you to walk astray continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming in light of the blessed hope the return of Jesus Christ we should live in such a way that when he returns we will not be ashamed Where there is no hope for the future, there is no power in the present. But if anchored in the bedrock of our soul is an unwavering conviction that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth again, it purifies our life. And I know what I'm saying to you this morning puts me in the dinosaur class of preachers and makes me irrelevant in a modern, technologically advanced and educated age. And listen, I'm not the highest IQ in this room, but I'm not a dummy. And I believe with all of my heart this this is not fairy tale. This is not fiction. This is not Stephen King. This is not Star Wars. The scriptures are true. And if Jesus' tomb was empty, then everything he said is yes and amen. And he promised with the resurrection that he would also return. And I'm banking my life on the reality that the King of glory is coming back to earth again. That is a purifying hope. When I have that kind of hope for the future, there is power for me to live in the present. The certainty of Christ's coming is a purifying hope, but it's also an encouraging hope. From the outside looking in, it may appear that the world is out of control. And I don't want to be a naysayer, but can I tell you that perception is probably not false, it's not wrong, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But listen to the Apostle Paul's bedrock belief in the matter of the, of, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a season of chaos in the world, he reminds us that in the middle of chaos, there is still certainty. Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, For in Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. I cannot tell you how many times when my life was falling apart that the last phrase of verse 17 is what helped helped me keep my sanity. In Him all things hold together. 
when the world was uncertain, when my family was tragically being attacked, when things were happening around me and I wanted to throw in the towel and quit, it is the last phrase of verse 17 that has caused me to tie a knot in the end of my rope and hang on with persevering faith that in Him all things hold together. Do you get that in those two verses? The certainty that Paul is living his life with? There is chaos going on everywhere in the world. But he says there there are prepositional phrases in these two verses. In Him and through him and for him and by him the whole world the creation that exists was created for his pleasure it was created in him it was created for him it was created by him it was created through him every authority whether in heaven or on earth visible or invisible whether power or ruler or authority there is not a thing in this world or the age to come that is not under his authority nothing is going to take him by surprise it is all his because he holds all things together He's not on vacation. He's not taking a nap. He's not sweating. He's not nervous. He's not worried about tomorrow. He could care less about the price of gold. He's not really concerned about the price of oil. He doesn't really matter that all the map of the world has been redrawn ten times in the last twenty years because of wars and rumors of wars. When the Richter scale reaches six, he's not nervous because he knew it was coming. He is sovereign. He is in control. And we can rest in the reality of his hands. He holds it all together. When we get that in our spirit, the least group of people that ought to be nervous right now, let the social pundits be nervous. Let CNN and Fox News scare people spitless. But you walk straight. I'm not digging a hole somewhere and I'm not buying interest in a bunker in the backwoods because He holds all things together. You have to understand... There's now and the not yet to the kingdom. Because people always ask, well, if God holds it all together, then why is it that this is going on in my life and this is going on in the world? It's because there is a now revelation of the kingdom and there is a not yet revelation of the kingdom. John the Baptist came and said, repent, the kingdom of God has come. It meant the kingdom's here. And yet Jesus came after John the Baptist and told us how to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray that the kingdom comes. How is that? How can you pray that, that, how can John the Baptist say the kingdom of God has come and now Jesus get up and pray, tell us to pray the kingdom of God would come? It's because there is a measure of the kingdom that is already here on earth, but the full measure of the kingdom is coming. There is a now and a not yet to the kingdom. And we live in the tension between the now revelation and the not yet revelation of the kingdom of God. His kingdom is established on the earth. He is coming again in the future once and for all to displace the kingdoms of this world and forever establish his kingdom on this earth right now we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places there is a measure of the kingdom on earth warring with a measure of the kingdom of the enemy but there is coming a not yet moment not yet but it will be when he will establish his kingdom he will displace the enemy the enemy will be bound there will be complete and perfect peace upon this earth as of now there is trouble in the world because we're in the tension between the now and the not yet The bride is not with the groom and the criminal has yet to be thrown in prison and the king is not on his earthly throne. But at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth we will finally be at rest. The earth will cease its groanings. Our trouble will be no more because the bride will be with her groom. The criminal will be shackled for eternity and the king of kings will rest upon his throne. Friend, the king is coming to earth again. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
Paul was writing to another young preacher and he was telling him of the kingdom of God coming and telling him that in the light of the suffering and the immorality and the moral bankruptcy and the uncertainty, he was telling the young preacher, you just hang on because when God picked, when it's the day, when it hits the day that He has chosen in His sovereignty, it's all going to make sense. All the suffering, all the anger, all the difficulty is going to, it's going to be worthwhile. He says, Timothy, but you, verse 11, 1 Timothy 6, 11, but you, man of God, flee from all of this, all this stuff in the world and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time in his time in his sovereign grace at the right hold yourself blameless against that day Purify yourself against that day. Encourage yourself against that day. Because when the clock strikes that sovereign moment, the Lord is going to establish His kingdom on the earth. And He said, The blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is mortal and who lives in an unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to Him be honor and might forever. He is looking forward to that day when the bride is with the groom, when the criminal is thrown in prison, and the king takes his throne he will be there for all of eternity and the earth will cease its groanings that is a purifying hope that is an encouraging hope but for me it is also a comforting hope first thessalonians chapter number four verse 13 the apostle is now writing a letter to the church at thessalonica many of their believers have died believing that the lord was going to come before they died And so the apostle is writing to encourage them or comfort them with the reality that even if your loved ones have fallen asleep or died in Christ, that they're going to be more alive at the resurrection. They are already alive with Him to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But there is coming a day when their physical body is going to be resurrected. And he writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. Men and women who were in a season of suffering, an era of instability, would watch their loved ones die as believers. They're worried about their own lives as mortals. Uh, They're worried about those that have died in Christ. And Paul gives them the promise of the resurrection when Christ returns and tells them those that are living are going to be changed and we're going to be called up together. The dead first and then the alive. And he said, let that be an anchor to your soul and comfort one another with these words. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the phrase in verse 16, for the Lord Himself. 
I like that. I mean, it brings peace to my heart because for all of eternity, He's been represented by somebody. There has been a messenger. There has been an ambassador. There has been a prophet. There has been an apostle. Somebody has spoke on His behalf. For 33 and a half years, He walked this earth. Out of all the thousands of years of time and eternity, He was only lent to us in the flesh for 33 and a half years where He represented Himself. Outside of those 33 and a half years, somebody else has always been His spokesperson. There has always been a prophet that said, Thus saith the Lord. There has always been an apostle that says, The Lord says unto you. There's always been some kind of messenger. But the apostle Paul wanted those suffering believers to know the Lord is coming Himself. Himself. When He comes on that day, it won't be a mirage. It won't be a messenger. It won't be an apostle. It won't be a prophet. For the Lord at that moment, when that time strikes, it will be the Lord Himself will descend to this earth and He will call His children home. I know the life we currently live is full of barrenness and miscarriages and terminal illnesses and funerals and heartaches. And it leaves us asking tough questions, asking God why it has to be this way. And Many of us lose our will to persevere and to fight. But Paul was saying to them, I believe he's saying to us, we're going to meet him in the clouds. The dead are going to be raised. The living are going to put on immortality. I know you're going through hell on earth, but comfort yourself with the reality that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. It's not a fairy tale. It's reality. If the tomb is empty, bank your life on it. Jesus is coming again. Listen, friend, your heartache is not the end of the story. Your barrenness, your miscarriage, your terminal illness, your unemployment, your financial situation. Many people are ready to shut the book. Don't close the book. That's only half the story. Don't put a period at the end of a sentence that God wanted to put a comma in. I'm not looking for a hole in the ground. I'm not building a bunker in the backwoods because the king is coming. I want you to get in your spirit. I don't care how old school it sounds this morning. I'm not a dummy. I'm a fairly educated man and I believe that the king is coming. He is on his way in our great democracy. We don't understand kings and kingdoms. But centuries ago, when a king would make his way through the countryside, riders on horses and messengers on foot and heralds of the empire would run ahead of the great procession and announce to every hamlet and village and town that the king was coming. Towns and villages and hamlets would make preparations. They would get Main Street ready. The town square would be made ready. They would get themselves purified and ready because the king was coming. This morning I am the messenger. This morning I am the herald. You better get off the complaint committee. Get off the criticism committee. Get off the program committee and get on the welcome committee because the king is coming. The king is coming. I don't know how better to say it than what Bill Gaither said it years ago. But he said it in song. The marketplace is empty. No more traffic in the street. All the builders' tools are silent. No more time to harvest wheat. Busy housewives seat their labor. The courtroom, there's no debate. Work on earth has been suspended as the king comes through the gate. Happy faces line the hallway. Those whose lives have been redeemed. Broken homes mended. Those from prison he has freed. Little children and the aged. Hand in hand they all stand aglow. Who were crippled, broken, ruined. Now clad in God. 
garments white as snow. I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng. And the fury of God's trumpet spells the end of sin and wrong. Regal rolls now unfolded. Heaven's grandstands all in place. Heaven's choir is now assembled. Start to sing amazing grace. The King is coming. The King is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding. And soon His face I'll see. The King is coming. The King is coming. Praise God. He's coming for me. It's a reality, friend. Come on, give Him praise this morning. Would you stand with me all over this place this morning because Bill Gaither was a contemporary songwriter. But centuries ago, there was a psalmist before Gaither or Chris Tomlin or any of our psalmists of a modern era who understood the reality the king would come through the gates again. And Psalm 24, the psalmist penned the words of Psalm 24, verse 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. He's coming again. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would prepare to help me in the altars this morning and prepare themselves. And I want you to prepare your hearts today. I don't have time to finish this morning. I have three more points that I would really like to embed in your spirit in these particular this conversation, and I believe it works really well with the context of what we're commemorating next weekend. Next weekend, I want to I talk to you about a challenging hope and a, and a stabilizing hope. I, I want to talk to you about different elements, a unifying hope, a challenging hope, a, a stabilizing hope. <clears throat> and I thought about it this morning as I started walking over my notes and getting ready to preach. I'm thinking, Lord... I sound like my grandpa preaching on a Sunday night in camp meeting when I, you know, I, I uh, but you know what? I, I edited yesterday a 67-page paper I'm, I'm writing for some doctoral work. And, and, I, and, and in the middle of all of our education and all of our technology and all of our attempts to be relevant, much of Christianity is living so occupied with this world that the reality of the next one hasn't crossed our mind in days. So even at the risk of being labeled an antiquated dinosaur, I'm telling you, I know it's outdated. And I know nobody wants to hear it. But He's coming. He's coming. If you believe it, you don't take risk with your behavior, your life. You don't take risk with, you don't, you don't roll the dice spiritually. You don't wait till tomorrow, time and eternity. You don't feel like you got forever to make up your mind. He's coming. It's a purifying hope. Believers don't linger in their immoral behavior. They don't decide to just, oh, I've been saved, now I'm going to wallow in immaturity. No, grace is not a license to continue in sin. Thank God for His grace. But when we live with His return, we live in such a way we're not ashamed of His appearing. I want to be ready. It's a 
comforting hope and an encouraging hope. And I don't believe that's any better stated anywhere than when Horatio Spafford wrote the words, It is well with my soul. He'd lost all of his financial holdings in the fire of Chicago. He lost a son to a terminal illness. And his three daughters drowned in sea. He could have easily said, if the kingdom has really come, why am I dealing with his suffering? But he understood he's caught in the tension between the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And so he wrote the words, because that blessed hope, he knew the glory that he would have in the future, outweighed the current suffering that he was going through. He was able to write, it is well with my soul. And the last verse of that song captures the reality of his hope. I want us to sing it today and I want the Holy Spirit through these words to embed in our heart. Not a false hope, not an uncertain hope, but the blessed hope. Come on, sing it.
Father, will you allow that promise and that blessed hope to purify us? Let it encourage us. Let it comfort us today. Lord, as we're going to learn next week, let it unify us. Let it challenge us. Let it stabilize us. Father, I pray you would embed that truth in our spirits this morning by word, by worship, by the seal of the Holy Spirit. May our hearts be full of faith and courage today. Live for you when we walk out of this place, regardless of our present circumstances. Jesus. I'm going to ask the prayer team if they will to gather at the front of this building and make themselves available. People in a moment will begin making their way out of this building. I believe there's an environment of faith in this room today. I believe the word has been preached. Our faith has been encouraged. There's an expectancy in God's ability to meet us where we are. There is a now to the kingdom. Yes, the full revelation of the kingdom is coming. But the kingdom of God is at hand and we can trust and believe for God to meet us. If you're away from God today, a prodigal that is wonderful God, a believer that is, you found yourself wallowing in, 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 in a place that you shouldn't be and you need to come back to God, find grace today. He loves you. He wants to correct you and love you and bring you to a, a place of purity for His return. Let these people pray with you. If, you. if you have a heart for an unsaved loved one, National Church Sunday in a couple weeks, or in light of the Lord's return, I just recently heard testimonies of some family members and friends that have come to Christ through the intercession of this church. Today is a good day to let these people join with you in intercession for the salvation of people you love and care about. The altars will be open. They're going to keep the environment worshipful. We're going to trust God to meet us here today. If you go, go in His grace. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their direction.